Chapter Twenty Five of The Armor's Prentices. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Esther Van Simonides. The Armor's Prentices by Charlotte M. Young. Chapter Twenty Five. Old Haunts. Oh, the oak and the birch and the bonny holly tree, they flourish best at home in my own country. When the absence of the barbarous token of the execution was discovered, suspicion instantly fell on the Moore family, and Margaret, her husband, and her brother were all imprisoned. The brave lady took all upon herself, and gave no names of her associates in the deeds, and as Henry the Eighth still sometimes had better moods, all were soon released. But that night had given Ambrose a terrible cough, so that Dennet kept him in bed two days. Indeed, he hardly cared to rise from it. His whole nature, health, spirits, and mind, had been so cruelly strained, and he was so listless, so weak, so incapable of rousing himself, or turning to any fresh scheme of life, that Stephen decided on fulfilling a long-cherished plan of visiting their native home, and seeing their uncle, who had, as he had contrived to send them word, settled down on a farm which he had bought with Perinal's savings near Romsey. Headley, who was lingering till Aldonza could leave her mistress and decide on any plan, undertook to attend to the business and little giles to his great delight was to accompany them so the brothers went over the old ground they slept in the hostel at dogmersfield where the dragon mark and the badge of the armourer's company had first appeared before them they found the very tree where the alderman had been tied and beneath which spring lay buried while little giles gazed with ecstatic almost religious veneration and ambrose seemed to draw in new life with the fresh air of the heath now becoming rich with crimson bells they visited Hyde Abbey, and the well-clothed, well-mounted travellers received a better welcome than had fallen to the lot of the hungry lads. They were shown the grave of old Richard Birkenholt in the cloister, and Stephen left a sum to be expended in masses for his behoof. They looked into St. Elizabeth's College, but the kind warden was dead, and a trembling old man who looked at them through the wicket hoped they were not sent from the commissioners. For the visitation of the lesser religious houses were going on, and St. Elizabeth's was already doomed. Stephen inquired at the right heart for Father Shoveller, and heard that he had grown too old to perform the office of a bailiff, and had retired to the parent abbey. The brothers therefore renounced their first scheme of taking Silk Steed on their way, and made for Romsey. There, under the shadow of the magnificent nunnery, they dined pleasantly by the waterside at the sign of Bishop Blaze, patron of the woolcombers of the town, and halted long enough to refresh Ambrose, who was equal to very little fatigue. It amused Stephen to recollect how mighty a place he had once thought the little town. Did mine host know Master Randall? What? Master Randall of Battersley? He should think so. Was not the good man or his good wife here every market day, with a pleasant word for every one? Men said he had had some good office about the court, as steward of the like, for he was completely conversant with great men, though he made no boast. If these guests were kin of his, they were welcome for his sake. So the brothers rode on amid the gorse and the heather until they came to a broad-spreading oak tree, sheltering a farmhouse built in frames of heavy timber, filled up with bricks set in zigzag patterns, with a high-pitched roof and tall chimneys. Barns and stacks were near, and fields reclaimed from the heath were waving with corn just tinged with the gold of harvest. Three or four cows of the tawny hue that looked so home-like to the brothers were being released from the stackyard after being milked and conducted to the field by a tall white-haired man in a farmer's smock, while a little child perched on his shoulder, who gave a loud, jubilant cry at the sight of the riders. Stephen, pushing on, began the question where their master Randall dwelt there, but it broke off halfway into a cry of recognition on neither side. 
Harry is an absolute shout. The lads, the lads, wife, wife, tis our own lads. And as Perinel, more buxom and rosy than London had ever made her, came forth from her dairy, and there was a melee of greetings, and Stephen would have asked what little one the pair had adopted, he was cut short by an insulting laugh. No more adopted than thy giles there, Stephen. Tis our own boy, Thomas Randall. Yea, and if he come late, he is the better loved, though I trow Perinel there will ever look on Ambrose as her eldest son. And by my troth, he need good country diet and air, cried Perinel. Thou hast had none to take care of thee, Ambrose. They have left thee pine and wine over thy books. I must take thee in hand. Tis what I brought him to thee for, good aunt, said Stephen, smiling. Great was the interchange of news over the homely hearty meal. It was plain that no one could be happier or more prosperous in a humble way than the ex-jester and his wife, and if anything could restore Ambrose, it would surely be the homely plenty and motherly care he found there. Stephen heard another tale of his half-brother. His wife had soon been disgusted by the loneliness of the verdurer's lodge, and was always finding excuses for going to Southampton, for she and her daughter had both caught the plague, imported in some eastern merchandise, and had died. The only son had turned out wild and wicked, and had been killed in a broil which he had provoked, and John, a broken-down man with no one to enjoy the wealth he had accumulated, had given up his office as verdurer, and retired to an estate which he had purchased on the skirts of the forest. Stephen rode thither to see him, and found him a dying man, tyrannized over and neglected by his servants, and having often bitterly regretted his hardness toward his younger brothers. All that Stephen did for him he received as tokens of pardon, it was not possible to leave him until, after a fortnight's watching, he died in his brother's arms. He had made no will, and Ambrose thus inherited a property which made his future maintenance no longer an anxiety to his brother. He himself seemed to care very little for the matter. To be allowed to rest under Perinal's care, to read his Erasmus Testament, and attend Mass on Sundays at the little Norman church seemed all that he wished. Stephen tried to persuade him that he was young enough, at thirty-five, to marry and begin life again on the fair woodland river-bordered estate that was his fortune, but he shook his head. No, Stephen, my work is over. I could only help my dear master, and that is at an end. Dean Collet is gone. Sir Thomas is gone. What more have I to do here? Old ties are broken, old bonds severed. Crime and corruption were protested against in vain. And, now that judgment is beginning at the house of God, I am thankful that I am not like to live to see it. Perinel scolded and exhorted him, and told him he would be stronger when the hot weather was over. But Ambrose only smiled, and Stephen saw a change in him, even in this fortnight, which justified his forebodings. Stephen and his uncle found a trustworthy bailiff to manage the estate, and Ambrose remained in the house where he could now be no burthen. Stephen was obliged to leave him and take a home young Giles, who had, he found, become so completely a country lad, enjoying everything to the utmost, that he already declared he would much rather be a yeoman and forester than a armourer, and that he did not want to be apprenticed to that black forge. This again made Ambrose smile with pleasure as he thought of the boy as keeping up the name of Birkenholt in the forest. The one wish he expressed was that Stephen would send down Dibble Steelman to be with him, for in truth they both felt that in London Tib might at any time be laid hands on and suffer at Smithfield for his opinions. The hope of being a comfort to Ambrose was perhaps the only idea that could have counterbalanced the sense that he ought not to fly from martyrdom, and as it proved the invitation came only just in time. Three days after Tibble had been dispatched by the Southampton carrier in charge of all the comforts Dennet could put together, Bishop Stokesley's grim sumpneur came to summon him to the bishop's court and there could be little question that he would have ported the faggot and stake. But as he was gone out of reach, no further inquiries were made after him. 
Dennet had told her husband that she had been amazed to find how, in spite of a very warm affection for her, her husband, and children, her father hankered after the old name, and grieved that he could not fulfill his old engagement to his cousin Robert. Giles Headley had managed his business excellently during Stephen's absence, had shown himself very capable, and gained good opinions from all. Rubbing about in the world had been very good for him, and she fairly believed that nothing would make her father so happy as for them to offer the share of the business for Giles. She would on her part make Aldonza welcome, and had no fears of not agreeing with her. Besides, if little Giles were indeed to be heir to Chesterside, was not the way made clear? So thus it was. The alderman was very happy in the arrangement, and Giles Headley had not forfeited his rights to be a freeman of London or a member of the Armourers' Guild. He married Aldonza at Michaelmas, and all went well and peacefully in the household. Dennet never quitted her father while he lived, but Stephen struggled through winter roads and floods, and reached Battersley in time to watch his brother depart in peace, his sorrow and indignation for his master healed by the sense of his martyrdom, and his trust firm and joyful. <clears throat> if this bay, as it is, dying of grief, said Hal Randall, surely it is a blessed way to die. A few winters later, Stephen and Dennet left Giles Headley in sole possession of the dragon, with their second son as an apprentice, while they themselves took up the old forest life as master and mistress Birkenholt of Chesside, where they lived and died honoured and loved. End of chapter 25 Recording by Esther ben Simonides End of The Armourer's Prentices by Charlotte M. Young